you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are going to be considering this whole chapter in its entirety this morning. Before we hear the wonderful words of life from the Word of God, let's go before Him together in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before Your throne in anticipation, Lord, of being fed by Your Spirit and Your most precious, Your most holy Word. O Lord, it is living and powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts and it divides, it pierces, Lord, it exposes. And, O Lord, we pray that your word would cut us to the heart this morning and would indeed comfort us and encourage us and lift us up as we consider Christ. O Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, shining the light of your truth in our hearts even now. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Here now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, as we approach chapter 8 of this epistle, we find the Apostle Paul 
clearly focusing on another matter of conscience. Indeed, matters of conscience are important. The conscience is our God-given moral barometer of knowing and therefore living rightly before God according to what we know to be good and evil. Knowing what's right is essential for pleasing the Lord. For God has revealed his righteous standards of right and wrong to us in his law. And we must know this law if we are to live according to it. However, simply knowing the facts of what is right and wrong isn't sufficient, is it? We also need to know how to apply the knowledge that we have correctly. And as we are well aware, it's possible to know the facts of a matter, but then to draw the wrong conclusions from it. And further, it's also true that our consciences aren't set in stone, never to change again. Rather, what is true is that they can be negatively affected. They can be twisted. They can be seared like a hot iron against meat by sin. And this is what we've seen time and again in Corinth. Paul taught them the truth, but they were wooed away. And, and at some point, their, their consciences were seared to be unaffected by sin. Frankly, we also see this to be rampant in the church today. Biblical lines and boundaries of right and wrong in accordance to God's law are moved in the minds of men and women. And then God's law is therefore broken with little care being evident in how they live. Martin Luther once said, To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Beloved, if the conscience can be misinformed and twisted, why should we not act against it? We, should we, like Corinth, follow our consciences into sin? Absolutely not. Never forget, if we follow our consciences into sin, we are guilty of sin. For we are required to have our consciences rightly informed by the Word of God. And as much as a, a conscience can be worn down and seared by sin, keep in mind that it can and must be educated and healed by the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the Word of God. And this is really what Paul has systematically been doing with the saints in Corinth, as well as with us. As he has been reorienting the lens through which we look at various matters he has addressed so far, he has also been speaking to and seeking to re-educate, to sharpen, and to reinforce truth in our consciences so that we would know and rightly walk according to God's word, and precepts. We've most recently seen this to be true in chapter 7, haven't we? And Paul's answering the Corinthians' questions regarding how they should live and think as married people, as singles, as widowed people in the congregation. Are we sinning in doing this? Well, Paul had the answer. Or are, are we sinning in not doing that? Well, Paul also very helpfully and rightly guided us there as well, didn't he? Again, biblical healing and realignment of the conscience to right and wrong was going on. And in this morning's text, Paul answers another question the Corinthian saints wrote to him about. 
That being about how they should consider eating food offered to idols. And so let's look at Paul's words here about what we think we know and being known in verses 1 through 3. What he says regarding food offered to idols in 4 through 6, as well as our need to be conscious and careful with others' consciences in verses 7 through 13. Look with me there at what he says in verse 1 as he begins to address what we think we know as well as being known. He says in verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Beloved, see how Paul, from the beginning, doesn't merely give the practical answer to their question. But what does he do? He lays the groundwork. He lays the foundation from which their question needs to be answered. And in doing so, he speaks to their knowledge specifically about food and idols. And what was going on in the context of their situation? Well, the saints knew the important truths, such as the reality that pagan gods aren't real, and they truly don't exist. They knew that food in itself does not commend us to God. Both are true. However, they wrongly applied this knowledge, believing that they could take part in meals uh, offered and presented in pagan temples without doing any harm. And yet Paul says... We all have knowledge. Remember that the saints in Corinth boasted in the knowledge that they believed they had. We've seen that from the beginning of Paul's letter here, even in chapter 1. And Paul was saying that those in the congregation who took such liberty weren't the only people in the know. They may have thought that they were the people in the know, and that their behavior, their conduct showed it. He said, no, think again. They weren't the only possessors of knowledge, especially when compared to those in the body who abstained from doing so. Paul's point was that those who abstained had as much knowledge about the vanity of idols, that they were nothing. They knew that. However, lawful liberty must be used with love and a view of not harming weaker brethren. And why? Knowledge puffs up, he says. But love edifies. My friends, love must be preferred over conceit. Over conceited, prideful knowledge. Our words and our conduct must never be guided by pride. Right? We are to put pride to death. We are to mortify it and get it away from our lives. For it is so prevalent, its tentacles go so many different directions and deep into our hearts in ways that sometimes we don't even realize. And so even as we consider such things, we need to hear his words that pride, excuse me, knowledge puffs up. Even saying something like, look at what I know. Look at what I know and therefore look at what I do, which shows how well I know it, and what I know to be right. But true love says, because of what I know, let me encourage and build you up. 
Because of the truth that I know, let me encourage you and build you up, not trailblaze in my own prideful mess. My friends, love builds others up, whereas conceit is blinding, and it shows one to be arrogant. Love thoughtfully considers the well-being of others, whereas we may think that our knowledge puts us in a great place and position. Conceit does nothing good to ourselves, and many times is much to the hurt of others. Remember what Paul taught the Corinthians is true about love and its many facets in that wonderful love chapter later in this epistle. You can turn with me if you'd like to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. Hear these words about love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you see this grand and multifaceted picture of love, even in those few verses. Smacking such conceited knowledge down to the ground. And so Paul challenges the Corinthians and us about what we think we know. Look at verse 2. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You think you've arrived, but you really haven't. Beloved, the one that truly knows best understands and has insight into his own ignorance. They know and understand the imperfection of human knowledge, and yet a conceited man thinks that he is far superior, demonstrating he truly knows nothing rightly. And Paul goes on in chapter 8, verse 3 to say this, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. If anyone loves God, my friends, and is thereby motivated to love and to edify his neighbor, that is evidence that he is known by the living God. Beautiful. Again, back in chapter 13, the love chapter, now look at verses 11 and 12, if you would, with me. We're going to look at a couple other passages as well that also teach us wonderfully about being known by God. Then in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 11, Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. 
eyes open, understanding opened by the living God, to know more deeply, to know ourselves even as he knows us. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, also a wonderful verse. Hear these words of Moses to the Lord. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found grace in my sight. Moses was fearful and afraid. He couldn't do it alone. He even doubted whether he was the man for the job. But God said, I know you by name. And you also have grace from me. To be known by the living God. John chapter 10, verse 14. The Good Shepherd Discourse. Hear Christ's words. I am the Good Shepherd, and what is true? I know my sheep, and am known by my own. He knows us, and He has given us the ability to know Him. Beautiful. Beloved, it is one thing to know about God. It is quite another to know Him and be known by Him. And therefore, being known by Him, considering Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8, love well. Love well. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. We love Him because He first loved us. He has known us from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. So Paul said that the Corinthians should have been less concerned about what they knew and more concerned about who knew them? And the same is true for us. There is great comfort and joy in being known by God. And so then, on this foundation, how should they then view food offered to idols? Paul again begins with another layer of theological foundation in verse 4 of chapter 8. There we read, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, and let's stop there for a moment. Beloved, the idols of the world, whether it be Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Buddha, the false god of the Mormons, the false god of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Hare Krishna, the false god of the Jews, etc., they're all dead, they're deaf, they're dumb. 
and they're blind. They are nothing. They're nothing. And we hear this marvelously taught to us in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You know, Moses also rightly proclaims in the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so even as Paul reflects on the grand truth that the living God is the one, the only, the true living God, all others are false gods, they're idols, they're dead, they're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb. Look at verse 6 wonderfully. Again, he points out the reality for us. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Beloved, we disregard and we smash the idol. There is one living and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And Paul here proclaims the full deity and the unity of the Father and the Son. You see him teach that specifically in Romans 9.5 as well. They share one divine essence. John 10 verse 30. They are one in substance and power and eternity. But Paul also here distinguishes between the person in the Trinity. The Father is first in order, of whom are all things. And further, he shares all of his divine works with his Son, through whom are all things. And indeed, through whom we live. Wonderfully, Jesus is also this very one through whom we live. Christ is our Redeemer. He's our Sustainer. He is the only mediator between God and man. And though the world claims that there be many mediators, there is only one, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, were all things created and do consist. Without Christ upholding us, beloved, even at the most minute level, we would cease to exist. We would not be. And that is true of all things. And He is the one to whom we owe all of our eternal hope and happiness. Praise the Lord. And again, with true knowledge that is evident in love, with 
the knowledge of the one living God in view, how should we look at food offered to idols? Again, Paul masterfully lays the foundation before he speaks to the specifics of the question. You need to have this first and stand upon that as we now consider what you need to know and what you're wondering about. We need to be conscious and careful with conscience, Paul says. Look at verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. He, he's, he's setting the stage. He's, he's stating reality about, about what's going on with the weaker brethren. Paul makes it clear that not every believer in Corinth understood deep down that the false gods are not actual deities. Some had consciences that couldn't grasp the nothingness of idols. Their weak conscience wouldn't permit them to eat food offered to idols. And further, see other stronger believers taking part in the meals of pagan worship and how that, that caused these weaker believers to believe that they were actually serving divine deities. Their conscience is being violated the weaker believers fell back into intentional idolatry. This is what was going on. And the body needed to notice, and especially the stronger brethren. Look at verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. The saints needed to remember that believers weren't holier or better of higher status if they ate, nor were others worse and lower class if they didn't eat. And therefore, an important principle must be kept in mind, he said. Look at verse 9. But beware. Watch out. Keep your eyes up and stay away from, see it and stay away from this, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Beloved, there is a great responsibility that those who know the liberty they have to be very conscious and lovingly careful with such liberty. Paul is teaching us that we need to be willing to set aside that liberty for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. We must be careful and mindful about not being stumbling blocks to them. And what does this mean? We don't need to be arrogant about using our liberty and cause a brother or a sister to trip or to sin because of what we do. And Paul gives a practical example, starting in verse 10. He says, For if anyone sees you having who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. For when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. See the weightiness of this matter here, beloved. Some may have kind of discounted it, not really thought too much of it. 
in many regards. It's not that big of a deal. They can make their own decisions. Oh, but wait a minute. What are you doing and how is it influencing others? And are they entering into sin because of you? Now hearing the language of perishing or being destroyed as some translations use, some of you may be thinking, now, now wait, Pastor, is Paul talking about the, the weaker brother somehow losing his salvation? Absolutely not. He is saying that the stronger brother must be careful not to wound the conscience of his weaker brother. The stronger brother must see the seriousness of the matter to cause another believer to sin or to wound their conscience is not only a sin against their brother, but it is a sin against Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate price to save us and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And remembering that should grow us in a love that looks out for their best interests, just as Christ looked out for ours in dying to save us. And therefore, Paul leads by his own example in practicing what he preached, and that's what we see in the last verse of the chapter, don't we, in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest my brother stumble. So I'll leave you with this. The question is, how then will you live? Considering these things, how then will you live? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Arrogance swells your head, and it makes you dense and headstrong. But true love warms your heart as it helps you to be more conscious and careful. It shows your love for Christ as you're considerate with what, with what is the best for building up and encouraging your brothers and sisters. Is God challenging you and changing you in this way today? Think about that. And never forget. It is one thing to know about God. It's quite another to know Him and to be known by Him. How will the pressing truth that uh, is being pushed in you as you belong to Christ, as you know Him and are known by Him, how, how does this affect how you love better when you leave this place? And be ever attentive and conscious of being careful considering the consciences of others around you. If you are the stronger brother or sister, don't be a stumbling block to your weaker brethren. Don't cause another believer to sin or to wound their conscience, as that would be a sin against Christ. Look out for their best interests and encourage them. And if you find yourself to be a weaker brother or sister in a situation... Don't go against your conscience. Go against your conscience is not right or safe. But may we all prayerfully seek to have our consciences educated and, and sharpened and rightly aligned with Christ and His Word. Remembering all the while that our consciences can't be seared. They can be twisted. They can be misinformed by sin. So they do, and often do, 
need to be re-educated, recalibrated, so to speak, healed, rightly aligned by the Spirit of God through His Word. May God give us all grace to do so. Amen.